Um, I am David Sills. I teach missions, uh, cultural anthropology at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. I also have this ministry, Reaching and Teaching, that we take people and train pastors um, around the world, primarily seeking to train them how to train others. That's pretty much what we do. And in the process of being a missionary in Ecuador many years ago, um, taking many teams throughout the years and teaching missions, helping young people and people that are trying to finish well, going into their second career, trying to help them transition to the field, even doing some consulting with people that are not necessarily in Christian missions, but they're going to be changing to live in another country. How do they make this adjustment to culture shock? And this is one of the big deals that, you know, we hear about. People say, oh, you went through the culture shock. And sometimes people say, you know, I went on a trip to Europe with my parents and, you know, the toilet stopped up. It was such culture shock. And that's not culture shock. Okay. So, but what we do need to realize is culture shock is a big deal. But what is oftentimes the case is that these textbooks or, or travel books, whatever, they present culture shock as if it's a one-time major thing that's going to hit you. And I do think that we need to understand that our first going and first settling in, there is some major culture shock adjustment that's going to happen. I want to explain that a little bit because forewarned is forearmed. When you know what you're going to be up against and what's going on and when you recognize in family members or team members what they're experiencing, that gives you a little bit more of a heads up to say, okay, I think we know how to, how to address this. We know what's going on. They're not completely losing their mind or whatever it might be. They are just they're stressing out. But the thing is, and this is what I want you to keep in mind, because some of you have lived overseas and you say, well, I know what this is like. I just, I, I, you know, I want to listen to this again so I can be better able to prepare somebody else. You know that the culture shock is not one thing that happens and you get over it and then it doesn't happen anymore. But rather, it, it is a cycle. And sometimes there are there are big deals you go through, and sometimes it's just the daily grind. But these culture shock cycles happen regularly throughout the rest of your life. I want to talk about some of the reasons why and what that cycle looks like, but I want you to keep in mind this is not a punctiliar uh, once and for all. We've done that. It's over with. Culture shock is something that's going to be true of living in another culture that is a culture in which you did not grow up. Surviving culture shock. One of the things that we used to say in our family, living in Ecuador, um, it was really strange for us living among the Quechua people. Um, they are, the, Latin Americans are another culture for us. But the Quechua people were another culture for them, too. So it was like a double whammy when we got there and we couldn't figure out hardly anything. And we were daily going through issues of of why they would do what they do. And we would say we had a phrase in our house. It's not wrong. It's not stupid. It's just different. Sometimes it would say both wrong and stupid, if not sinful. But it was still just different. It's the way that they would do things. We. They would say, if you're going to buy meat now, you need to go down to the meat market. We'd say, well, of course. You know, we're thinking Kroger with the little plastic things with cellophane on the meat. You go there and there's a cow hanging up by its jaw out under a tree, right? So you cut off what you want and they weigh it and you take it home and cook it. And tomorrow, whatever didn't sell today is still hanging there. And then the next day and then eventually there's just a cow face hanging there and somebody buys that and makes soup out of it. That's just the way that it is. But the interesting part is when they'd say, but now when you go... 
to the meat market, make sure you buy the meat that's got the most flies on it. Don't buy it if it doesn't have flies. And um, we were like, what now? And they said, yeah, because if it doesn't have flies, it's been out too long. You want the fresh meat. And we would have to go home and remind each other, it's not wrong, it's not stupid, it's just different. And on and on. I mean, eventually, when you see your significant other, your spouse or one of your kids sitting there with a twitch, you know, you say, it's not wrong, it's not stupid, it's just different. A friend of mine, he and his family were in um, Central Asia for about 20 years, and he said their family used to say it the second way. There's a reason why they do things this way. We'll probably never know what that is, but there is a reason why they do it this way. And you just remember there is order. Because why? One of the things that causes us culture shock is that nothing makes sense. We tend to like order. It's the way we are wired. And especially as believers. Because why? 1 Corinthians 14.40, everything should be done decently in order. And we begin to realize there should be an ordered existence that we live. And, and we like being able to explain why certain things happen certain ways. We like systems theory. And we like being able to use linear sequential logic and figure things out. And when you go to a world where nothing makes sense, it causes a certain level of shock. And so you begin to judge the world that you're experiencing. We call that ethnocentrism. And you see in the word, etymologically, the ethno has to do with my ethnic group, my ethnicity. And the centrism simply means I think that my culture, my ethnic group, is the center of the universe. Everybody wants to be like us. And if they don't, they don't know about it us yet. And my job is to go and help them to explain how to do life better. Let me show you how we do this back in the U.S. Uh, and there are people who are like that. Archie Bunker is one of their names. But they go around and they try to explain that our way is the best. I remember in uh, Miami one time I saw a, a bumper sticker, I'm sure, referencing all the snowbirds that come down there uh, during the winter months. But it says, we don't care how you did it up north. And people get like that. And when you go to these other countries and you're always wanting to explain to them, let me show you how to make a real cup of coffee. Or let me, you know, they, they don't care. After a while, and then it begins to be offensive to them. The practice of judging the values, the languages, the standards, characteristics, the music of another culture against your home culture. The, the thing is, they're always going to be seen as inferior. They're not going to ever quite measure up to what you think they should be. And so you began to reject the other culture. Now, what we need to do is recognize you can't make that go away. You can't take that bone out of your head that prefers your own culture. But if I at least recognize that's going to be my tendency, I'm going to want to, to maintain my status quo. I, I can remember even in, in language school, going to the local church, and, I, you know, I tend to be obsessive compulsive. I, I'm, I mean, in fact, I'm not, I don't have, I'm not OCD. I am CDO, which is OCD in correct alphabetical order. That's the, the way that I tend to be. I'm anal retentive about things. I'm sort of a control freak. And I would sit in those worship services where there's like a ladder leaning on the pulpit that's been there for three weeks and, you know, empty Coke cans around. It's just chaos. And halfway through the sermon, he remembers some announcements he needs to make and he stops and talks. And I was just uh, talk about the twitch, and I said, I can't wait till I learn this language. I'm going to get my guitar, and I'm going to translate some of my favorite courses, and we're going to have a real worship service. I'm going to show them how to do this. And what we need to remember is when we go to another culture, to the degree that you change things to make yourself comfortable, they tend to be uncomfortable. 
that we're going out and making folks like us, as if Jesus said, go you therefore and make good U.S. citizens of all people. That's not what we're supposed to do. But we live that way because we want to be comfortable and be able to explain our existence. There's a true fictional book that was written in 1958 called The Ugly American. That's where the term comes from. And it was written about our Foreign Service uh, Diplomatic Corps, primarily in Southeast Asia, because in that day, our diplomats did not learn the local languages. They didn't learn about the cultures. They didn't learn about the dress. They didn't appreciate the, the values or even understand what the religions were. They had these little U.S. consulates and embassies, and everybody in there dressed with coats and ties and spoke English. And even if some of the local leaders wanted to meet with our people, and they came to the embassy, they had to dress like we dress. They had to get a translator, if they didn't know English, to be able to deal with our folks. Well, the Russians didn't do it that way. And we realized after a while in Southeast Asia, they were having much more impact than we were because we were not being sensitive to the local cultures. There are about 11,500 or so cultures, ethnicities around the world. And each one of them has their own perspective, their own worldview, their own language, their own background, their own food system, their music, religion, everything that is a part of who they are. They have their way of interpreting life. And when I come and act and interact and react as if I am still back home, two things happen, two different kinds of culture shock. One kind of culture shock, type one culture shock, is what I suffer. I'm expecting everybody to act just like everybody back in Cut Off, Louisiana, or wherever I happen to be from. I'm expecting everybody to act that way, and they don't. So I'm constantly in the shock. But I cause them to have culture shock. That's type two culture shock. When they're expecting me to act like a real person, and I don't. Everybody they've ever known who was an adult knew how to speak their language and eat their food and, and interact in an appropriate way. And I don't. And so they're constantly trying to figure me out. And people are awkward being around me. To the degree, to the degree that you don't fit in, to the degree that you're a jerk in their culture, and to the degree that you are all they know about Jesus, Jesus doesn't fit. Jesus is a jerk. And they don't understand him because they think that's who you're representing. Now, that's unfair. You say, whoa, that's pretty heavy. Well, hard cheese. That's the way that it is. When, they're, when you're all they know about Jesus, you have to be the one who is more culturally sensitive. And it makes a difference when you're trying to understand. You don't have to perfectly understand. You're just trying to understand the best that you can. Now, culture shock. When we talk about culture shock, I need you to know that it is inevitable. I have talked to some people. In fact, when we were in Costa Rica, our little brother and little sister, which, you know, the language school hooks you up with these people who come in and you're supposed to pick them up at the airport and get them situated. And they had been a couple of years somewhere in Africa. And I remember dropping them off at the house and the husband of the couple explaining to me, now, we might have some culture surprise or a little culture fatigue, but we won't have culture shock. We've been in Africa for a couple of years. And I thought... Uh, you hold on to something because it's going to happen because not because it's harder, but because it's different. It doesn't have to be hard. You don't have to be living on a tree limb. 
and catching your own food in your teeth or anything like that to go through culture shock. It's different. Your routines don't work. You've lost all your routine. What's a routine? A routine is something you can do without having to think about it. Most of you, when you got dressed today, you didn't have to think, okay, I put this little hard plastic thing in the hole and I twist it like this. You just button your shirt. You're probably carrying on a conversation. My mom used to make an entire meal carrying on a conversation and wasn't even aware she was making the meal. You've probably gotten to work or to church or to, to school and asked, you, wait a minute, how did I get here? You drove all the way there and you were thinking about something else. Because that's a routine. When you leave this country and go into another culture... Just because it's different, those routines are gone. And that will cause culture shock. It simply happens when two or more cultures collide. Now, Costa Rica is a very civilized place. Uh, it's a beautiful place. It tends to be fairly pro-American, or at least not as hostile anti-American as some of the other countries we could, we could name. But in Costa Rica, there was culture shock. I can remember some of our Asian students who came to, to study in Costa Rica. Uh, one of the interesting things is one of our Tika teachers, one of the Costa Rican teachers told us, she said, now one of the things about us that you just need to be aware of is that we consider an educated person, someone who, you know, presents themselves well, wears shoes and all that. Kind of, I mean, certainly not on the beach and that kind of thing, but in just regular everyday life, he would wear shoes. In fact, if you're even watching television on Saturday afternoon, watching the football game, and somebody knocks at your door, you, you would put on your shoes before you open the door. I mean, otherwise, it'd be like opening the door with your underwear on. I mean, who would do that? So it was really important that you present yourself well. But, you know, our Asian students who are raised in a culture where from their childhood onward, they had been told you would never go into someone's house. With your shoes on. I mean, you know what we walk around downtown. Why would you, what, what we walk in, why would you carry that into someone's house? It'd be like standing on their dining room table with your shoes on. You don't do that. And so when they would get to the front door of someone's home where they had been invited to eat, there would be a crisis of faith almost. Because they're, they're, they want to take off their shoes to honor the person. But they know because they've been told... I take off my shoes, that's going to be embarrassing to them and awkward. So they come on in and they enjoy the night, the meal, but they feel this tension the whole time. And you think, well, that's not that big a deal. I mean, hello, but no, there's a lot of those every day. For instance, everybody do this. Put your hands together like this. Now, look down and see how many people have the right thumb on top of your joint. How many right thumb people do we have in here? That's about half. It is always about half. There's a Ph.D. dissertation in there for somebody, but it's always about half. Now, take your hands apart and put them back together the other way. Well, now, that's just weird, right? I mean, it's awkward. It doesn't feel right. And it's always good when you're dating or get married. If somebody likes to hold hands like you do, so you're not fixing it all the time. But, you know, it's, it's just... But it, that's culture shock, okay? You say, but, okay, but you could train a chimp to do that. That's not hard. I know, but there are hundreds of those every day. What about crossing your arms? If everybody were to do that, we won't hold up hands to see how many right arm people, but there would be about half again. So take your arms apart and put them back together the other way. Well, some people are having a look, right? Because that feels weird, right? That's just not the way I would normally do it. And the way that you would normally do it doesn't work when you go to a country, for instance, if you're used to driving on the right side of the road and they drive on the wrong side, the left side of the road. 
Right? You have to make that adjustment or you're just going to be a greasy spot there on the side of the highway. You have to figure that out. Or it's, and it's not a big deal until you go into the roundabout. But it's not normally a big deal. But you have to always think. When you have a hot climate culture interacting with a cold climate culture. Some of you have read the book by Sarah Lanier. It's a phenomenal little book. It really helps the light bulb go off for a lot of people. Uh, it's um, called Foreign to Familiar, A Guide to Hot and Cold Climate Cultures. And she was an MK all over the world. And then she was a missionary in a number of countries. And she, one of the things that she noticed is the fact that people who are from hot climate cultures tend to be one way. And people from cold climate cultures tend to be another way. For instance, the hot climate cultures are, very, are more relational, laid back. You know, you got... Uh, Andy and Barn and Aunt B out on the front porch strumming the guitar, talking when people are strolling down the street. In cold climate cultures, they just sort of nod at each other on their way in and out of the house. They don't spend a lot of time relationally. Maybe, maybe because they'll freeze to the spot if they stop walking. But it, it's still, that extrapolates through all of life. And people tend to be more business-like. In the Deep South and many places in Latin America, if I go into a store, I can't just say to the lady uh, that she's got the bottles of water behind her, a bottle of water, please. She'll say, good afternoon. And I say, ah, oh, good afternoon. How are you today? Can I get a bottle? And she's glad to sell it to me, but she's not a vending machine. Conversely, if I go to some of the cold climate cultures and I say, hello, how are you today? Can I help you? Uh, a bottle of water, please. Yeah, they don't want, they, why, business is it of yours how my family is. They don't want to talk about that. So you have to understand where you are and make that adjustment. I'm trying to help you develop your inner Jason Bourne. Okay, that's what we want to be. We want to move seamlessly from culture to culture, get our backpack with all the different passports and money and stuff like that. But just understanding that hot climate cultures tend to be this way and cold climate cultures are different. I commend the book to you. I, I've even gotten youth groups who've gone on mission trips to read that and I don't think I've ever asked a class to read it where someone didn't say, now I know why my wife is so weird or why my roommate or why their family is so strange. It's just they're not weird people. They're just different. They approach life differently. Your learned worldview cultures no longer function. If somebody says, hey, uh, if your wife says, friends, or your husband says, hey, can you stop and get some milk on the way home? Well, you know how to do that here without even thinking. But there, you do have to think. You have to, you're always thinking, okay, now how will I, how will I say this? Uh, what, what words, what verb tense, which vocabulary should I use? And then to whom should I speak when I first go in there? Um, you can really embarrass yourself in Spanish by asking that in an inappropriate way that you don't mean to. And in every other language, there are other issues like that as well. A lot of people have tried to define what Culture shock actually is, but it's basically just an emotional, mental, even visceral reaction to a shaken world. Everything, it's like a basket of leaves that you've thrown up in the air and you're waiting for it to settle back down. Until you acclimate and adjust to this new culture, you're always off kilter. And it's a constant tension that you're having to go through every day to make that adjustment. So what is culture shock? Well, I want to say to you that I present it as there's three primary stages of culture shock. And I want to try to present this graphically, although I don't have a whiteboard here. So let me do it with this um, 
this red dot and let's make this a, a graph and let's make it an emotional graph. How are you doing emotionally? Okay, so we're going to enter over here on the left side about right here. As you enter into this whole process of moving overseas, let's say that you've been praying for years about being a missionary. You've been applying to various mission agencies to find out more about them. You've been doing research. You've been doing everything you possibly can to go and get to the field. You've been reading missionary biographies. You just you can't wait to go. And then you finally get the official okie dokie. You have been appointed to be a missionary and you've raised your support and you've got your ticket you're so excited you can't stand it and then you're on the plane on the way right and so your emotions go up a little bit you begin to rise in that emotional scale this is what i tend to call culture surprise when the plane lands and it's taxiing up to the building and you're looking out at all of the sea of faces you're looking at the beautiful sights. You think, I am finally here. I am a real live missionary. And I am going to do what God has been leading me to do all of my life. You see the beautiful homes or perhaps the mountains. Or maybe you see the, all the houses painted the same color. It's the marketplace scenes, the flowers in the market. It's, you just... Every day you walk down the road just looking at the beauty of the faces of the people, their expressions and their costumes. You're excited to be there. You think about the sounds. You hear, maybe you go to a Muslim country and you hear that call to prayer five times a day. And it breaks your heart and it reminds you why you're there. You're there to share the gospel, to tell people about Jesus Christ. And you're trying to minister to those that are hurting. Perhaps you hear Sounds of warfare off in the hills and you realize that you're there to bring relief to these people that are suffering. Or maybe even just the people selling things, going up and down the street, the pregoneros, the people selling their wares and things like that. And you're so excited to finally be on the field. Everything just sends off sparks of excitement in your head. The smells, the aroma from the bread stores, the the, fl the fields of flowers and roses that are growing. The money. I mean, it's like Monopoly money, right? Everything's different color and different size. You just sit at night, you just f go through it and you just think, I am here. Finally. You can't walk past somebody's house without them inviting you in to sit down and have a, a piece of, of pastry or a cup of coffee and talk to you about their, your home country. And they want to tell you about theirs and why they do certain things. And... You're pretty jazzed about being there. That's going to last for a little while. It could last a few weeks. could last a few months. It kind of depends on how long you're going to be there. If you're only going to be there for a one-week vacation, you're probably not going to go through a lot of culture shock beyond this. So that might be the sum total of your experience. And this is one of the dangers. I just uh, wrote a book called... Um, Changing World, Unchanging Missions with um, InterVarsity just came out. And basically, I'm talking, each chapter is a different trend in the world today. What's going on, whether it's globalization or terrorism, different things like that. And then what the missiological implications are, how we can be ready for the changing world that's going on all around us. But one of the things that I'm talking about is short-term mission trips and how this is such a a wave of missions that is kind of describing and defining missions for a lot of people. Cut to the chase. 
The thing is, when people go on a short-term mission trip and they have this wonderful experience because somebody has them by the elbow, the missionary picks them up at the airport, takes them to a hotel, puts them in a nice place, gets them the next day and takes them to a meal, and the next day takes them to where they're going to minister and translates for them all day, takes care of any wrinkles or problems, gets them back to the hotel that night, then they have this big celebration meal and they go back. I mean, they're so jazzed about being there, they can't wait to come back again. They go back again expecting that experience and they have it. Because they go back on another short-term mission trip. And that happens, right, several times. And then you get the official okie-dokie to be a missionary. And you come to live there. And everything changes. You've got to find your own food. You've got to find your own apartment. You've got to work out the language and try to figure that out. And then it begins to, to settle in. So it depends on how long you're going to be there, why you're there. Maybe you're there with the military and you're... You're living in Germany on a base surrounded by other gringos. There's not going to be a whole lot of culture shock if you're a CPA auditing the books for a petroleum company. And you're in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, but you're in a five-star hotel where everybody speaks English. There's not going to be a lot of culture shock. But, you know, most missionaries don't live at that level. So you're going to be out with the people. And culture shock's going to hit a little harder. But this will last. The culture shock excitement where it kind of goes up a little bit. That's good. And it will last. Enjoy it. That's the honeymoon stage. Some people call it the tourist stage. It's just basically a surprise while you're learning everything about the place. But that begins to change. Because you begin to realize, I can't go to my mom's for Sunday lunch. I can't go hang out with my friends. I can't go to Starbucks. I can't do what I would normally do to recharge my batteries back home. With the agency that you're applying uh, to serve with with whom you're applying to serve, it could be that they're asking questions like uh, that are, that are prying. They're getting into your background. Tell me about that dating relationship you had. Tell me about how you feel that your mom is divorced and she's you're her only child. She's dependent on you, and you're about to move. You're thinking that's none of your business. It is their business. Why? Because here, when life happens and difficulty and hardship comes. You have ways to recharge your emotional batteries. Or if you want to think about it like shock absorbers in a car. Here, when your shock absorbers start getting weak and it starts being metal on metal, well, you can go to a movie, you can go fishing, you can go shopping, you can go to a football game, you can do whatever you want to do with your friends you can go get chocolate, whatever you want to do. That just really is going to make you feel better, get you past this kind of moment, right? Or you see somebody's coming down the hallway that's kind of a draining personality. And you think, I'm going to go down this hallway. Because, you know, I'm just not at the place right now where I, I can deal with that person. I don't hate them. I don't dislike them. But they're just so draining. I need to kind of avoid that person. That's why God made caller ID, right? So you can avoid those kinds of, of issues. But when you go to another culture, those things that you have always used to maintain that cartilage or that, that shock absorber, that you've always used to maintain that, that, those things aren't there anymore. And life gets daily. And before long, it's so much metal on metal as you go down the road, you run over a cigarette butt and it knocks the fillings out of your teeth. Now you're just, you cannot deal with this anymore. So that begins to bring out some ugly things. And sometimes memories and sometimes uh, some trauma, perhaps, that we suffered in the past that we never totally dealt with. We just kind of put it far enough down to where my recharging could handle that. 
you need to remember that when that starts happening and you start looking for those kinds of things to minister to yourself, you begin to reject what is here. Because frankly, it is a little frustrating when, when I was going to move our washing machine over just a little bit and I had to go to the hardware store and explain to them I needed a piece of pipe about 18 inches long and I need some galvanized pipe, five-eighths or whatever it was. I explained to the guy what I needed. It took me about a year to explain it, but finally he figured it out. He goes, okay. And he goes in the back and he brings it to me. Cool. I mean, that's a, how about that? And then I said, well, wait a minute. There, there are no threads on the pipe. Uh, that's, this won't work. He goes, oh, no, the guy that puts the threads on them, that's my brother-in-law. It's the other side of town. You go over there, and he gave me these long directions to get there so I could go over there so the guy could put the threads on the pipe. And, of course, I went back to the house with a twitch. And, or Mary, one time she was going to sew a button on my shirt. A button. And you have to go to one store to buy the button, another store to buy a needle, and yet another store to buy thread. There was no Walmart where you could just go and buy everything in one place. And she came home with a twitch. It's always something that you just think, this is, this is making me crazy. And you begin to reject. But sometimes it's because you're at church and you come home or maybe you're off on a, um, a medical clinic out in the bush somewhere. You come home and the national someone broke into your home. They stole your kid's favorite toys. Maybe they broke into your car. Maybe they hurt someone in your family. Maybe there was something you foolishly took to the field that you cannot live without. Maybe it was pictures from your grandmother's wedding and it was just in a book of pictures of your favorite pictures. Number one, don't do that. Scan them in. Okay, but if you can't live without it, don't take it. But something like that happened and you can't get past it. And so you begin to reject the culture. You begin to paint everyone with the same brush. When someone does something to you, Every national is a potential suspect. I remember we were living in Ecuador at 9-11 and the FBI of the U.S. and the El Comercio newspaper down there took out a full page ad and there were these 50 little carnet sized pictures of guys that said they were the 50 most wanted Al-Qaeda operatives and they were believed to be living and working in our area of the continent. And as I looked at those pictures, Mary and I realized these guys could be our next door neighbor. They all look like our people. And so I began to notice this attitude that I had as I would go around and I would be looking at people. And I, I was just angry. I mean, every day on the news, watching what was going on in my country, and I was separated from that. And I, I had to deal with that. And it kind of makes you reject the local culture a little bit. And when you begin to reject the local culture, you reject everything that goes with it. You begin to establish a little island of the U.S. in your home. For instance, I can recognize that if I go visit a missionary and I go into their home. And as soon as we open the front door, all the kids come running. Yay, daddy's home, whatever. And they're all wearing their little U.S. flag T-shirts. And, you know, I'm listening to U.S. music playing in the background. And mom's cooking hamburgers or spaghetti in there in the kitchen. Or we're going to order from Papa John's tonight. And Papa John's is from here in Louisville. But it's everywhere in the world, right? You can't swing a dead cat without hitting Papa John's anywhere in the world. And so every... But they're trying to recreate this little island of U.S. culture at home. Now, to a certain degree, that's okay, because you do need to recharge your batteries. But do it in the back room of the house. Pick out a night that's going to be our American night. And, and if you're in a country where the women cannot wear pants um, or 
shirts that show their arms or anything like that. And she just wants to wear a t-shirt and jeans tonight. And they want to watch their favorite DVD and make popcorn and have pizza night or whatever. Do that. But when that begins to define and describe your life, the nationals will see that before you do. And they'll begin to realize this is where you would rather be. Culture shock during the rejection stage can take a pretty ugly manifestation. I had a friend who was going through it. And every morning when we heard the American Airlines flight leaving the airport, because at 7 o'clock the flight going back to Miami would leave. And he would hear that. He'd say, there goes the Freedom flight. And he'd take U.S. dollars out of his pocket. And he'd tell people, he just acted like he was joking, but he'd say, smell that? That's what money from heaven smells like, and stuff like that, right? Um, so much so that he would go home. Now, in those days where he lived, the only cable channel that came in was C-SPAN, right? But he paid in English. He paid to get it so he could see something in English. And every day he would go home and he would sit there till midnight with the curtains drawn and the door shut, just watching C-SPAN till time to go to bed. And the next day, he might venture out to do missions to somebody, but then he would come back home, and that would be his life. That begins to describe and define you to the nationals before you even recognize that's a part of who I am. That rejection stage um, is recognized when, for instance, I ask a, a missionary, I'm in their home, and... The husband, let's say he's had run back to the office or something. The wife is in there cooking a meal. And I say, hey, what time is it? And she looks at her watch. And she pauses for a minute. And I say, well, is your watch broken? She said, no, but I keep it set on U.S. time back home. I'm trying to think. And I think, okay, something's going on here. They don't live here. She still lives there. Some things you might just think are normal. That you don't really think of as rejecting the local culture. I was in Madrid talking with the guy that's the president of the seminary where I was doing a short course. And I said, you grew up here, right? And he said, yeah, of course. And, he's, and I said, well, did you ever interact with any evangelical missionaries when you're growing up? He goes, oh, yeah, in our local church, we would always do stuff with them. And he, I said, well, did they ever do anything that would drive you crazy? And he said, yeah, he said, like, for instance, if I'd go by their house about 530 or six at night, knock on the door and they would open the door and they would all be sitting around the dinner table. And I'd be waiting for the other shoe to drop. I said, OK, why, why did that bother you so much? He said, well, it's obvious, right? They didn't want to live here. They wanted to still be in the U.S. He said, we don't eat dinner till like 1030 at night. And something as little as the rhythm of life that you're used to, maintaining that in your home and flaunting it to the nationals is offensive. And before I could say anything to tell him that was a little over the top, I remembered that back when I was a businessman, businessman before the Lord saved me, I had to go by and get a client to sign some paperwork. He was Brahmin Indian, wonderful guy. Um, but he wasn't, he wasn't home, so I knocked on the door. His wife answered the door, and when she opened the door... I mean, I grew up in Mississippi, right? So this is pretty monocultural. Um, I didn't have a lot of experience with other cultures. She opens the door and she's dressed just like she stepped right off the street in Kolkata, came right into this house or something like that. You could see over her shoulder all the furniture had been brought in from somewhere else. None of that was from Mississippi. And I could smell the curry and the spices coming out of the kitchen that she was preparing her, the evening meal. 
and I like to think I was more mature than this, but I'm, I'm telling you, my initial visceral reaction was like we used to have an editorial writer named Louis Grizzard. He used to say, hey, if you don't like it in the South, Delta's ready when you are. But, and I wanted to say that, but I thought, I, you know, kept my mouth shut because after all, this was my client. But I got to thinking about that experience. Why did I feel offended that she had maintained her home like they were comfortable maintaining their home and she was cooking the food that they preferred to eat. I don't know why, but I know that's how nationals feel when they would come into our home in Ecuador and they would recognize this is just like a little island of U.S. culture. Some people go through country shock. You grow up in West Texas and then you move to a country where you're living high in the mountains. You know, in West Texas, you can see flat everywhere, all the way to Jerusalem if you want. They're just completely flat. And then you go to where there's mountains and trees everywhere and you sort of go through a claustrophobia almost where I can't see anywhere or vice versa. You're used to having the comfort of the beauty of the surroundings of the trees and the mountains and all of that. And you get out to a place where you're living in the desert or you're used to living at altitude and now you're living on the coast or vice versa. And you're having to buy new clothes and you're having to adjust to drinking more water and using lotion more often living at high altitude than you did when you lived down in a humid part of lower country. You'll hear missionaries using pronouns like us and we and them to speak of the nationals. Well, you know, we're this way, but you know how they are. And you can tell that they are beginning to dichotomize the world. They're beginning to put people in one category that the Lord has sent them to serve and they're here. And you can recognize sometimes these missionaries will get in the car with their whole family. All right, they're going to get in their brand new Range Rover. And they're going to go down into the poorest part of town on Sunday afternoon. And they're going to get out. And they're going to play their guitar. And Dad's going to lead in a little devotion. And they're going to have a little worship service and do missions to the people. And then they're going to get back in the car and put their missionary cologne on. You know, the Germanic stuff. And they're going to put that all in there. Drive back to the nice part of town. And go to the mall to eat pizza that night or something like that. And that's their mission service. That's what they do. And they never live among the people. We work with uh, Quechua folks in Ecuador doing our pastor training. And one of our very first trips into that community, we... You know, because we teach all day long, we eat there with the people, we sleep in the same little village and everything with the people. It's just, that's what we do. And um, the logistics are such that it's not because we're wonderful people, that's just what we do. But one of the national leaders came up to me at the end of the week and he had tears in his eyes. He said, brother, this has just been so powerful. I'm so thankful you guys came. And, this. and I thought, well, brother, you know, we want to help. We want to teach. We, you know, the Lord's taught us. We want to help teach you. He said, no, no. Yeah, I mean, what, like what you did this week. I said, well, like what? Because, I mean, really, I was clueless. And he said, like, he looked at me like I'd lost my mind. He said, eating with us. He said, white people don't eat with us. And it dawned on me that that was one of the most powerful things that we had done all week. And that spoke a connection to them more than anything else. But it, it was difficult for you. Our people don't normally eat guinea pigs. They're pets in the U.S., right? And they serve them whole laying on your plate like that. So it... <laughs> You know, you have to kind of <laughs> missionary prayers. I'll put it down if you keep it down. That one of those kind of things. <clears throat> but you also find that people begin to caricature and they ridicule the nationals. They, you know, we, you know how many Ecuadorians it takes to change a light bulb, don't you? And they'll say things like that. And all the jokes you told growing up, 
you now retell those kinds of things. And why do we do that? Because we feel so vulnerable. We feel so um, embarrassed because we can't speak their language. And ever we see them speaking, we know they're talking about us. We begin to get paranoid, right? Every time we turn on the TV and there's a football game and the team huddles up, we know they're talking about us. They're just, they're always, if, like if I'm at a bus stop and I see two of them standing there and one, one of them starts laughing, I think, he's laughing at me. Well, it, you know, if you tried to use their language, they might be. But they're probably just telling jokes. When you learn the language, you'll feel a little better about that. But because we feel so vulnerable, we ridicule others to make ourselves feel better. It's a self-preservation technique that you learned when you were little. You make fun of people that are different because it makes you feel superior. But one of the things that I have seen that impacts people in ways that are um, hard to get around, especially for this demographic, for people who would come to a conference like this, and it is role deprivation. When you go to another country to live, and you've got to learn the language, you've got to learn the culture, you've got to figure out the whys and the wherefores, and men sit on one side and women sit on the other, and things that you just normally would have never done, and you make mistakes in the language. Craig Storty um, Anthropologist says the fastest way to make a fool of yourself is to begin to learn another language. And so you're, you're starting to learn the language and people are laughing at you all the time and you laugh along for the first 600 years. But after a while, it just really starts grating on you. You're tired of being ridiculed and you're, especially when you're trying to have a serious conversation. And, but you have to admit, you do make mistakes all the time. You're, you're doing all of that in another culture where you still don't speak the language yet and you can't be who you were. Maybe you were a powerful pastor here in the U.S. or a medical doctor or surgeon or nurse. And now where you go to this other place, you can't even ask for a glass of water. You don't know enough of the language to ask where the bathroom is. Or maybe you learn that, but you don't know what they're saying when they answer, right? So you, you just feel clueless and you can't do anything. I remember in uh, Costa Rica, in, in language school, a little church where we were going in language school, they came up, we'd only been there about a month, right? And the guy walked up to me and he said, hey, brother, um, in just a minute we'll have the offertory. Would you pray the offertory prayer? I'm sitting here on the pew with my family, and I've been a pastor in the States for years, and I love to teach God's Word. It's my favorite thing to do. And I'd been in ministry for a number of years, and I sat there, and he asked me that, and I had to look at him and say, no, brother, I can't. He said, no, we don't want you to preach. We just want you, we just want you to pray. And I said, no, I can't. And I remember we walked out to the bus stop waiting on the bus. I didn't say anything to my family. I just sat there and standing there and then on the bus all the way home, I felt so guilty. I felt like such a bad person. And the devil was working me over really hard. And I didn't stop to tell myself, you've only been here a month, man. You don't know the language yet. Take a, take a break. But I couldn't. I, I just felt terrible. Because I could not fulfill who I was. I was a, a pastor. I would minister to people. I couldn't do that. And that lasted a long time. Until I really got proficient in the language. And until I had made a reputation where people would accept me as a minister and etc. Certainly that is true for people in a medical profession. Certainly it is true. 
when you don't know the language well enough to minister there. Now, if you have a translator, that's good. That's pretty good. Because a translator, um, unless you know that person and they know medical terminology and they know English very well and their language very well, you don't always know that what you're saying is what they are saying. Um, and I could go on and on till Jesus comes back talking about um, problems with translators. You need to learn the language. If you're going to live in another place, you need to learn the language because their worldview is bound up in their language. The fastest way to learn another culture is to learn their language. And the fastest way to learn their language is to learn their culture. It's a symbiotic relationship that you have to embrace both. Now, this uh, rejection stage will last a few months to a few years. Um, how quickly you get out of it depends on how quickly you bond with the culture and the language and make friends. And you need to remember why you're there. When you come home and they've broken into your home and stolen everything that you valued, you need to just remind yourself, if these people were perfect and great, wonderful Christian people, God wouldn't have called me here anyway. They, they need us here. This terrible thing that has happened is proof that they need ministry of Christian people here in this place. So, but this can be a pretty deep pit. And it is during the rejection stage that people quit missions and come home. People begin to doubt their salvation. People begin to doubt their sanity. They doubt their salvation because the devil is reminding you, if you were really a Christian, you wouldn't be thinking this way about the nationals. One guy I know was going through culture shock so bad that he told his friend, he said, you know, I came here to keep these people from going to hell. He said, some days I don't care if they do or not. I'm sick of it. And he said, some days I'm just ready to tell them to go there myself. You think he needs a break. Well, he did need a break, right? But that's what happens to you in culture shock. And so when you find yourself thinking those things, you think, what a, wait a minute. I, I, if I was a Christian, I wouldn't think those kinds of things. And the fact that, that out there, some of you are thinking, there's no way I would ever say that or be friends with anybody who would. Means you're going to feel that much worse when you're the one thinking that. Because it, it sneaks up on you and you think, oh, my soul, did I just think that? When you begin to reject the people so badly and so harshly, you get down into that pit. It's hard to get out of that. And it's pretty deep. Some people get a divorce during that time and leave their families. You're trying to somehow reestablish your shock absorber. Well, this thing is called surviving culture shock. And I've spent most of my time just telling you what it is. So let's survive it real quick. There are three ways out of this culture shock pit, this rejection stage. One way is not healthy at all, and it's a way out of the recovery stage that we call culture assimilation. It's just going native. And that sounds really cool, right? I mean, like, I'm going to go native, boy, then I won't have culture shock. You can't do that. God has made you who you are and gave you the background that you have. That, that is your personality. That's your life. You've grown up in your culture. You have inculturated to the culture that is your in-group. That's your life. When you go to another place, you cannot pretend that this is not true. Uh, Sherwood Lingenfelter says that the best we ought to hope for is to be a 150% person. He said you can't be 100% Mississippi native and be 100% Quechua Ecuadorian. 
You can't do that. Jesus is the only one who could be a 200% person. He was 100% man, uh, God and he became and is 100% man. And he is the God-man. He's a 200% man, if you can do it that way. It drives mathematicians crazy, but let's just say that. But he says the best you can hope for in another culture is about 75%. Because you didn't grow up there. You don't know the rules of, of the kids' games. You don't know the popular singing groups from the time that you were four, five, and six, and seven years old. Or who the famous sports stars were. You don't know those things because you didn't grow up there. You always have that vacuum for that part. He said, so maybe 75% could be the best you can hope for. But to get there, you've got to be willing to let go of about 25% of who you were. Your preferences, your prejudices of the past to embrace the new. So that if you could get to be a 150% person, that would be great. But you know, some people say, forget it. I don't want to speak English anymore. I'm not going to think about the U.S. anymore. I'm just going to think about this new place where I am. I have a friend who was a missionary to South Africa, and he spoke Afrikaans, and he just, he, this is what he decided he would do. He did not have the great blessing of listening to this lecture. So he went there and he did that, but he, he decided, you know what, I'm going to grow me a big beer gut like those Afrikaans guys have. I'm going to get me a big red beard, and I'm going to marry an Afrikaans girl, which he did, and I'm only going to speak Afrikaans. I'm not going to write my parents anymore. And he burned out, had a, like a nervous breakdown, uh, got a divorce. Went back to the States, a broken person. Uh, the Lord has since restored him, and it has uh, ended well for him. But it was a difficult time, because he tried to be and do something that God had not made him to be and do. So, how can I be the best me that I can in this place? What, what could I do? What I really want to strive for is... Cultural acceptance, cultural adaptation. When you grow up in a culture, whatever your end group is, you are enculturated. But when you go to another culture, you have to acculturate and adapt and embrace and appreciate. You bond with the culture. You learn their humor. You make friends. You learn to appreciate the music and the food. And you say, listen, you don't know what the food is like. I do know what the food is like. Uh, the Lord has let me travel all over the world. I do that on a regular basis. And yeah, I mean, I mentioned one of the missionary prayers is um, already. Another one is where he leads me, I will follow and what he feeds me, I will swallow. You just get that in your brain and you just your brain is screaming. That's not food. That's not food. But you eat it anyway. And most of the times people survive. It's, it's you know. You can get past it. But what happens is you remember, it's not wrong. It's not stupid. It's just different. It's the way that they're going to do it here. And after a while, the most interesting thing happens. You came in, you were really excited, and then you got down in this deep pit. Now, graphically, we could say going native is just like a rocket going straight up. We could do, it. We could do that if you want to. Because it's like a rocket you would set off in your backyard. Boy, it goes straight up. and It's so cool to watch. But what happens? It runs out of fuel eventually, and then it falls and crashes. And that's what happens to us when we try to go native. But what we want to do is come out of this pit and try to come out about at the same level where we came in. The reason we initially had that rejection is because everything that is normal is not here. My mom's cooking, my friends doing activities that recharge my batteries, etc. I can't do those here, so I'm beginning to reject this. I don't understand life here. I'm tired of people laughing at me, so I reject this. 
and I get down into that pit. But after a period of time of making friends and learning the language, now what was abnormal has now become normal. And I can embrace it, and I'm over here thinking it's okay to go to the meat market and buy the meat that's hanging under a tree. You could do it. That's just the way they do it here. And you kind of snicker when friends come over to visit you and they're grossed out by it. And you think, you know, I guess I was too at one point, but that's just the way it's done here. You get cultural informants to help you make that adjustment. Now, I said there's three ways out of the culture shock rejection phase. Here's the last one. And it is culture tension, culture stress. And we could say graphically, like you're excited when you get there, you go through the rejection, but then you kind of come out right down here. You just never totally adjust. You've got a, a, maybe a spouse that did come out at a good spot, and they are just doing wonderfully well. The Nationals love them. They love the Nationals. This is the best life they could ever imagine. Every day is the best thing since night baseball. They're just so excited to be here. And you feel so guilty because you're down here. And I've talked to some people. They say, well, my husband or my wife loves it here. But, you know, I'm kind of doing a life sentence because I don't want to, you know, wreck God's plan for our life and be the one who says, you know, well, we're not going to do what God wants us to do. So I put up with it. But you're not the only one that knows that. The nationals see that before you do. We had one missionary lady, and I'm not making fun of anybody. I'm not going to mention her name. Uh, and I've seen this go both ways. So I'm not just saying it's the women who don't adjust at all. In fact, one of my very good friends, he did not adjust, and his wife they still talk about They still miss her down there. She was a phenomenal missionary. But in this one case, the wife did not adjust, did not want to be there. And back, this was back in the day when women wore gloves like to church. You know, this is, so you're thinking several decades ago. Um, but they wore gloves. And if she did not wear her gloves that day, she wouldn't shake the nationals' hands. She never invited them into her home, wouldn't sit next to them on a pew in church. She paid one of the nationals to reach over the fence and beat her dog with a stick so he would bark when nationals came around their house. And one night, at night, if she heard a noise in their backyard, no questions asked, she wouldn't say anything. She just opened the back door <coughs> and shoot out into the backyard with a pistol. She never hit anybody, but only by God's grace. And she, the point is, don't come around my house after dark. Now, you're thinking... She probably didn't need to be there. No, she probably didn't. Her husband was phenomenal. And you know what? And on paper, she was too. Because she did a lot of things in the church. She led youth groups. She did all kinds of things that she decided was going to be her ministry. But years later, I'm back in Ecuador. I'm in like the last minute or so, so I'm looking for a place to land. But I'm back in Ecuador. I'm doing a conference where I teach for an hour and a national friend of mine teaches for an hour. And we were trading off, you know. And so I'd done an hour. I was sitting down getting my notes ready. And he was standing up here teaching. And I heard him mention that missionary family. And I I kind of perked up a little bit. I thought, what's he saying about them? And he said, you remember so-and-so. And he mentioned the husband. And this warm fuzzy came over the crowd. Everybody smiled and said, yeah, he was so wonderful. I said, well, what was good about it? Oh, he used to take us to town and he would do this and he would do the other, et cetera, et cetera. And he said, but now you remember his wife. Everybody kind of looked at the ground. <laughs> smiles went away. And he said, what's the matter? Well, what are you doing that for? One of the guys said, well, she didn't like us. He said, she didn't? No. How do you know that? Well, you know, she wouldn't do this, and she wouldn't do that. She never did this, she never did the other. He'd say, but 
She never told you she didn't like you, did you? Did she? And they said, no. He said, but you knew, right? And they said, yeah. And he said, you know, it doesn't matter how much you tell the people that you love Jesus and you want them to come into a right relationship with Him and everything else. They can tell by the way you live what you really believe. And he was just using that as an illustration. It wasn't Slam Missionary Day. It was just an illustration. But what I took away from that is just how powerful it is when we don't want to adjust and we continue down on in this slow burn, this culture tension down here. We don't want to embrace the people. Uh, you have to get past that stage. And the way you do it is to make friends, learn the food, learn the culture, learn the music, embrace, fall in love with the language. And when they see that, you will begin to make the adjustment of getting out of culture shock and embracing the new culture. Um, let me just say this, and I'll say this in closing, and we'll, th- we'll be through for promise. Don't forget, though, once you've gone through all that, and now the abnormal is now the new normal, that when you go back home, that's not normal anymore. In your mind, you're telling yourself, I can't wait to go back home and go to my favorite restaurant and sit around with my friends. And they're going to be listening to my missionary stories, sitting around my feet like Marco Polo or something like that. It's not going to happen. And when you go back and that doesn't happen, you feel like, well, I don't fit in at home either. The reason why is because the abnormal has now become normal. You will be weird the rest of your life. You won't fit in anywhere. But this is not our home. We're only passing through, and our citizenship is in heaven. While you're here, make the most difference you can for Christ's sake. And the way that you can do that is to survive culture shock, get on the other side of it, and love the people in the culture where the Lord sends you. God bless you. Thank you.